So I imagined my son and I thought, would I ever say, I love Hayden, but I would love him just a little more if he didn't have Asperger's. And I just started laughing because it didn't make sense to me. We very often give conditions to ourselves. I will love myself if this condition is met. But unconditional love, uh, by definition, is the one where you love a person, not despite the imperfection. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Christina Mandlakiani. She's the co-founder of Mind Valley the world's most powerful life transformation platform with 20 million plus followers, with over 20 million followers. She is also the author of the recently released book, Becoming Flossom, The Key to Living an Imperfectly Authentic Life. Today on the show, we discuss the dark side of the self-help industry, how to identify, accept, and improve your flaws and imperfections, how to avoid the indecision trap and get over the fear of failure, what self-love actually means and how to make it last, the pros and cons of perfectionism, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Christina Mandlakiani to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. And one of the main things, one of the main reasons I'm excited to chat with you is because I know that you talk about how personal growth has a dark side. And I often will say that now and that I think something that was meant for something good that at, that is important has also created a lot of insecurities and um, burnout and um, feelings of less than amongst people. So in your perspective, given that you have started Mind Valley, which is one of the bigger personal growth companies there are, why do you think that there's a dark side to it? Well, you know, they say that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think <laughs> personal growth industry is like any other industry. There are, um, there are uh, traps. There are traps everywhere. And if you take any, any phenomenon to its uh, extreme, it can get uh, negative. I was actually, once I did this mental exercise where I was trying to take, well, mostly emotions, for example, and seeing if, if you can uh, get them to the extreme where they become, the, too much of an emotion becomes a negative. In fact, I've created like a huge chart of emotions as, as, um, as help for some of the exercises that I do. Uh, and I realized that when you go really deep and when you go really intense, almost anything can be turned against you. For example, you take love, too much love can become obsessive, can become stifling for another person. Uh, you take kindness, it can become submissive, it can become pleasing. Uh, you take joy, uh, it can become, um, you know, euphoric to the point where you, um, you become delusional in a way. So whatever, whatever you take, even the good things, if they're taken to the extremes, can become uh, bad for you. Now, with personal growth, it's a little easier, though. <laughs> There are uh, there are traps like anywhere. Uh, there is a trap of um, you know uh, probably the easiest answer would be uh, the concept of uh, spiritual bypassing. If you just start digging into that concept, you'll discover quite a lot of distortions in our industry. And yes, I've been part of it for twenty years, so I take the blame. 
Where do you think we went wrong? Like, do you think it was because people found a way to monetize it? Do you think that people are just um, perfectionists in, in human nature? Like, what do you think has caused this dark side of personal growth to, emer to emerge? It's not like it's like one dark side, like the moon has a dark side that we have never seen. It's more like there are, uh, there are extremes and there are distortions everywhere because uh, perfectionism has its good sides. It uh, keeps you, you know, it, 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 it uh, keeps you shooting for the stars rather than the moon. It uh, actually uh, has its positive sides, but it also has its negative sides. Um, but with personal growth, I think... Um, uh, the biggest problem is the paradigm from which we very often function, as in uh, what I have right now is not good enough. And uh, that's not purely personal growth uh, issue. That idea that you're broken, that something is wrong with you and you need to be fixed, it's something which is quite typical for quite a lot of areas. Well, personal growth is one of them, because if you take whichever teaching you take, very often, at least the marketing side of it starts with, oh, um, you're unhealthy, uh, too bad for you, it's not your fault, but you know, you need to be fixed. Your relationships are not uh, where you want them to be. It's not your fault, but you need to be fixed. But that's, you know, that, that is actually is also the, the paradigm for, let's say, marketing. What's the favorite question of a marketer? What is the one thing that doesn't let your customer sleep at night? You know, what is that thing that they're thinking about when they can't fall asleep? Uh, take news, take entertainment, take um, movies, a lot of uh, a lot of the things which are uh, which we as humans, contemporary humans, are exposed to, uh, they come from the same idea that um, you know we're broken and we need to be fixed. Do you ever feel that? And I ask this question with coming from a place with nothing but love and respect. But do you ever think that companies like Mind Valley make make the problem worse, and that they always, in a way? have people thinking they need to work on constantly be working on themselves constantly trying to fix something that's wrong and do you think that that can create just a toxic i mean that can create just insecurities within people when they're seeing content from mind valley about you know just constantly needing to work on themselves that they feel like they're just not enough well i would i will make a distinction between marketing and the content itself i don't think there's anything wrong about constantly working on yourself and constantly trying to be better uh, anything which is alive tends to grow and tends, let's take plants, they tend to, to, to strive for the sun and for the light. So there is nothing wrong in the idea of uh, constantly working on yourself. <laughs> because as uh, one of the wonderful teachers in our industry, Harv Eker says, uh, whatever doesn't grow dies. So I think this is not the problem. The problem is what is the fuel for your need to grow and change? Is it because you believe that you're broken in essence and something is wrong with you? Or is it out of curiosity, for example, as one, one alternative mechanism for growth? Or is it because uh, you, you have new challenges which excite you and they require new skills and new, new ideas, new outlook on life? So there are different different uh, ways to want to grow or different uh, motivational factors uh, for growth. And uh, my favorite advice would be, you know, if you can replace judgment with curiosity, your growth is going to become much more enjoyable. Because the problem is not the fact that people want to change. Change is the most constant part about life. The problem is that people want to change and they um, that, that, that desire to change comes from pain, intense pain. And 
I understand it's much more marketable. I get it. Uh, but but we don't have to keep telling people that they're broken because I think people are not broken. They're human. And part of being human means being imperfect. Imperfection is not something to be fought. Imperfection is something to be um, acknowledged, to be embraced, to be bridled maybe, tamed, but not, not slain, not fought. And that's, that's a huge difference. So building off of what you just said, so people, I think by now, they, I think they, they know that they are, we all have flaws. We are all imperfect. Um, what is your advice for somebody to be able to, um, to kind of bridge the gap between accepting their flaws and perfections while also like consuming content in the personal growth industry where it's inviting you to work on your flaws and imperfections and get better? Like how, how can somebody marry those two things? Well, it's one of those um, distortions that we have about uh, the idea of self-love. And I have to maybe make a little disclaimer. As a society, we're very vague on what does it mean to love yourself. Uh, we uh, very often write off uh, self-love to something like self-obsession or selfishness. We misunderstand what, it is, what, what the nature of self-love is. And because we misunderstand the nature of self-love, we tend to think that uh, part of being, um, you know, part of loving yourself is being, is being complacent. I don't want to grow. I don't want to change. I'm good the way I am. But that's a misunderstanding that doesn't come from true self-love. That comes from fear of failure very often. Most often it comes from fear of failure. Uh, one of our wonderful teachers, uh, Marissa Peer, she says, um, you know, she, she was recording a program with us and one of the guys in our team asked, so Marissa, but if I t tell myself that I'm enough, am I not going to want to just l lay on my couch and, and keep telling myself I'm enough? Uh, and she said, no, you, you do that. You, you have this complacent self-talk because you don't think you're enough. You're afraid to go and challenge yourself. When you know you're enough, that you can give yourself love with your imperfections, despite of them or maybe because of them. When you know that you can give yourself love when you fail, that's when you find courage to actually go out and challenge yourself. So to be afraid of self-love because you think that will, uh, that will steal your passion for growth is uh, in essence just because you don't yet fully understand the concept of self-love. With that said... What do you believe it truly means to practice self-love in a way that's sustainable? Because I think in the Western world, we think of self-love as, like you said, complacency, or it's like buying stuff, it's being in a relationship, it's status, it's I, you know um, how big your following is on social media. Like, What do you believe is a sustainable way to build self-love. So uh, the last one which you were talking about, that's vanity, that has nothing to do with self-love. Uh, the first one is, uh, I guess, um, maybe even so, uh, low self-esteem. There are a lot of different ways we distort that concept. So very often when we see people uh, showing up, uh, showing off their, their polished facade and asking for admiration and for, uh, for, for approval, like, you know, why, why do so many people want to be successful? Because they want to prove something to someone. Sometimes they want to prove something to themselves. Sometimes they want to prove it to a person who misunderstood them, you know, that, that person who wronged them. We very often go for achievements because we want to prove something. Uh, we, we want a big following as a proof that what I do matters. Uh, 
but you know, I'll give a um, I'll give a maybe a little bit simpler analogy to understand. So, if you're a vessel and love is liquid in the vessel, self love is the liquid which is inside in a glass, for example. And if your glass is full, you cannot pour from the outside. When you need the love and admiration and approval from outside, that means that you can't give it to yourself. So that's why we have an idea that there is such a thing as too much self-love, because we think that you can go to the extreme. And of course, I'm contradicting myself because I did start. <laughs> I, I did answer to your first question that <laughs> anything, but when it's when it is at the extreme, it can be uh, it can be dangerous. And probably, probably, I have to <laughs> I have to eat my own <laughs> dog food right now. I guess there is such a thing as too much self-love, but. Um, but the healthy relationship with self uh, actually uh, actually means that you won't overdose on it. Uh, you know, uh, since self-love is so hard sometimes to explain, um, I like to compare it to love for the person that you love the most um, in the world. Usually it's for a lot of people, it's children, but it can be a sibling or a friend or a parent or a dog or a plant if you're very introverted. We all have something that we love unconditionally and effortlessly. Most of us have that. So that's a love for a, love for a child is probably the closest we get to unconditional healthy relationship. Self-love is your relationship with yourself. And if it's really hard to judge, am I being selfish? Am I being complacent? Am I being, uh, you know, self-obsessed? Do I need validation? Just imagine, imagine that relationship with the person that you love the most. How would you treat them in that circumstance? What would your, uh, you know, what, what, what would your words be? What would your uh, comment be? And that usually helps to, to sort it out. So I'll bring a very, a very personal example. So I'm 45 now and I've put on some weight. <laughs> Not too much. I'm still wearing them. <laughs> so it's all fine. But, you know, we, we tend to be critical. So I get the concept of uh, love for your body. So, so I remember I was once... Uh, I was once looking at myself, trying to practice that love for myself, you know, despite my, my, uh, well, my body aging. And then I thought, you know, I do love myself. If I could just get rid of those, like, those, like, five kilos, it's fine. Just the five. It's not much. I know. I'm still healthy. It's all fine. I still love myself, but I'd love myself more. And then I thought to myself, so my son, uh, my older child, he has Asperger's, which makes him... Uh, uh, quite an interesting human to interact with. And I had, I had my, my, my journey with him. So I imagined my son and I thought, would I ever say I, I love Hayden, but I would love him just a little more if he didn't have Asperger's. And I just started laughing because it didn't make sense to me. You know, we very often give conditions to ourselves. I will love myself if, I, um, if, if, if this condition is met. But unconditional love... Uh, by definition, is the one where you love a person not despite their imperfections or not because you hope that they will change their imperfections, but with them and very often for them. Yeah, and th thanks for sharing that about not only some of the stuff that you just mentioned about your struggles with self-love, but also like with how it relates to your son. I want to talk about how that all comes back to complacency. Because I know you said that like one of the things that's not self-love is complacency and a thing like 
health. I'm not going to say appearance. I want to say health. I think that's a, probably a better term to use here where I get that you don't want to base your value on yourself based on how you look, right? That's a trap that a lot of people fall into that I've fallen into myself. But I think sometimes what can, how do you prevent yourself from not falling into the trap with being like, well, I'm not going to care about the way that I look. I'm not going to base my value on that. And then you just really don't do anything. Like how have you learned to be able to acknowledge that you love yourself for who you are while also your words, not mine, being aware that you want to take better care of your health. Like how have you been able to focus on those two things together? I think health and uh, and appearance are quite different things because health has a very uh, practical implication. If you don't have health, uh, then you can't do a lot of things in life. So health has a very different place. And by the way, our contemporary society's perception of health and looks are not quite the same. In fact, what we find beautiful Medically, strictly medically speaking, is very often not very healthy, by the way. So uh, I, I, I will leave health aside. I will talk about the looks because that's the painful one. And it's not just how much you weigh. It's also the aging process, which humanity hasn't come to peace with because, you know, people age as they used to age. Maybe they're healthier in their old age, but we still age. But we live actively much longer. So we have many more opinions about people aging. And no, you can't, you can't ignore it. And you can't close your eyes to that. And that's not... That's not what I'm talking about. Self-love is not about being indifferent to how you look, being indifferent to, you know, what's happening to your life, being indifferent to your imperfections. No, it's recognizing that certain parts about you are what makes you you. You know, there's a difference between a bad habit and a quality which is intrinsic to you, which you cannot eradicate. The problem that uh, I see is that people very often, if they don't like something about themselves, they start fighting it. And some things are not to be fought. Some things, uh, and again, I want to say that bad habits can be removed, but some things are not to be fought. I call, I call those intrinsic parts of you your dragons, because it can be a quality about you. It can be a personality trait. It can be your trauma from the past, your, you know, your background, whatever it is. The things that make you feel less than, uh, like my accent, for example, English is my third language and, you know, how much, how much criticism I've got for having a very bizarre accent. So we have those dragons which make you you. And the question is not about saying, oh, I don't care. Oh, I'm going to love myself with that. The thing is that what I'm talking about is recognizing that they are there. The dragons are there. So what are you going to do with them? Are you going to make it your curse or your blessing? There are things I don't like. I would like to be different, but I refuse to let them be my curse. That's a huge difference. Not letting um, whatever it is you're you feel insecure about, or maybe you wish may be different and not let that like bring you down and identify, you let that define you. Right. I think that's super important. Um, talking about self-love, talking about the path back to yourself. Obviously I know you and envision created mind Valley and have built this incredible thing together. And I know, um, I guess it's been a few years, you guys decided to divorce, and unconsciously uncouple, I think, as I read. <laughs> the, the, the correct term, yes. <laughs> but talk, talk about the process back to finding yourself, because I would imagine that part of your identity was wrapped up 
up until that point into building this thing with with vision and a part of that included you guys being married um what was initially going through what was the initial stages like for you from like an emotional standpoint and then what was the process like of um like finding the the path back to yourself a disclaimer we separated uh, it was a common decision between me and vision so it wasn't one person decided and now with that disclaimer said, I think the separation was the result of me finding my path back to me, not the other way around. And of course, after, after we've untang untangled that relationship, I had to rediscover myself again. And again, I'm not saying that I don't uh, regret that decision or, or that change or that, you know, I wouldn't want it to be any, uh, to be something different. But of course, uh, it did, um, it did, um, make me, reevaluate who I am again and again. But still, still, first came the question, where did I lose myself? Attempt to find who I am. And then came the realization that maybe that marriage wasn't, uh, wasn't what I needed. What did you do to find yourself after the marriage dissolved? Like, what were some of the things that you discovered about yourself? Like, what were some of the, like, speaking of personal growth, like, what were some of the biggest areas of personal growth in your life, like, post-divorce? Interesting. I've never connected, um, connected uh, whatever I was doing in, in, in professional life with my divorce uh, to any degree. I guess the only, uh, the, the only search that I'm making is in my personal, in my relationship, love relationships, which I very seldom talk about because that's not my forte. But when it comes to professional life, you know, not much has changed. We are still uh, business partners and huge support for each other with vision. Maybe uh, it, it maybe it is a coincidence. Maybe it is a result of the divorce that I um, started being more visible uh, on the English language market in Mind Valley. Before that, I um, I, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't looking for a limelight and it might be the result of the divorce, but it might not be. I, I can't really tell. Um, I, I guess, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that not much has changed for me, uh, in all areas except, you know, romantic area in our relationship with vision. And thanks for sharing that and being honest. I mean, I know it's not easy to talk about this stuff. It's not, you know what? It's not, not easy. It's confusing because I haven't given much thought to it in that aspect. I was just curious because I know that like, I'm sure, you know, you built these massive personal growth company and together and you're talking about a lot of things like relationships and that sort of thing. And then when you kind of go your separate ways, I would imagine there had to have been some areas of emotional and emotional and personal growth for you specifically, like after that all went down. There's always, um, I think whatever we do, if we notice our emotions, there are always emotions. And of course, conscious uncoupling or otherwise, uh, it is, uh, you know, there will be, there will be emotions, there will be jealousy, there will be regret, there will be a lot of things and uh, on one side or both. Uh, the question is not really the emotions that you're going through or the turmoil that you're going through, but the intention that you have. And there are still frustrations from time to time. So the intention uh, remains the same as uh, four years ago. I think it was four years ago. God, I can't remember anymore. The intention remains the same, that we want to be support for, to each other in the areas where we can. Bill, I, uh, I guess following up on, on that, as we segue into something else, I think a lot of times people have trouble having trouble building up enough courage to do something like walk away from a relationship that maybe isn't serving them, walk away from a job, you know, 
take on a new hobby, like you name it, what have been some of the your best practices in your own life as far as um, creating courage within yourself to, to make decisions, not just with the divorce, but in other areas of your life that are in more alignment of where you want to go? So the best practice, and I'm saying it with a little bit of a <laughs> joke in mind, the best practice is skydiving. <laughs> and skydiving. I'll explain why. Yeah, not because it's an extreme sport. I'll explain why. Uh, uh, I remember when I first went skydiving, um, and we set the date. Uh, I kind of felt that uh, my life, um, my life was uh, clear to me until that moment. And then after that, I couldn't, I didn't dare to imagine anything because I was just so scared. And um, I remember the morning when we we went skydiving. I woke up and I was thinking. Well, it's the day, but I don't have to jump probably. And we we drove to the drop zone. And as we were driving, I thought, I can just go there. I don't have to jump probably. Like it's nobody's going to force me. And then we go through the training and I feel I can do the training. It doesn't mean I have to go in the plane and jump. And, you know, it just goes like this. We put on the outfit. We are in the plane. And I, I remember as I'm in the plane, I'm still thinking, I've been in a plane so many times and I've landed inside the plane. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to be outside the plane. And then that moment comes when you are in front of that open door and there's nothingness under you. It's just so far away and so incomprehensible that you, your brain activity, in essence, stops. Uh, and of course, I did my first skydive tandem. So <laughs> I was kicked in the back and I fell out. <laughs> and the moment I fell out, I suddenly felt like I was flying. And when the moment came to open the parachute, um, my instructor said, you have to do it. I'm like, no, I'm enjoying the flight. So he had to, he had to pull the chute for me because I just wasn't ready. So why I'm saying that this is the best practice for doing things, for making decisions is because the distance between paralyzing fear and the feeling that you're flying is one step into the unknown. Physically speaking, it's incredibly easy. But of course, it is not so easy when you're standing in the door and looking down at the uh, 4,000 uh, meters below you or 12,000 feet. So uh, for, for in, in real life, in real life, we usually don't risk our life when we have to make a decision like to divorce or uh, whether it's a marriage divorce or let's say partnership divorce. I've, I've uh, had brutal separation with a business partner and it can be just as emotional, just as hard as, uh, as a you know, romantic divorce. I know it's not as um, usually not as dangerous physically speaking, but it is as scary and for you to make to be able to make this decision all you need is actually a little bit of honesty with yourself and that's that's the the hard part because we we don't like uncertainty we don't like um we don't like to be afraid and it's much uh, it's much more enjoyable to to uh, come up with a beautiful story while you're not making the step that you're supposed to make. So I, I mentioned that I had a pretty brutal uh, business divorce. I had a business partner for three years. I, I mean, for six years. Three years were good, and uh, after that, our relationship was very bad, really bearable, or barely barely tolerable. Uh, and um, and I just couldn't make the step. So I told myself that I, I can't separate from this person in business because we have business to run. We have um, 
We have partners, we have clients, we have employees, we have all those people who depend on us. So I can't rock the boat. And as a good entrepreneur, I should, uh, I, I, I should ignore my own feelings and my own well-being and my happiness and just, uh, just push through, just keep doing it, keep going. And that was such a good story, which I believed for three years until I did my skydive. And it was so unbearable that I, there was just no way out and we had to separate. I proposed the divorce. Uh, I remember the next day was literally, I felt like I was flying. I felt like I had wings behind my back. It was so unbelievable. I couldn't believe that I was, uh, I was suffering for three years only to feel lightness the next morning. But that's not the interesting thing. Uh, it, the interesting thing happened a few years later. I had one employee who was with me from the very beginning uh, through all the years of my partnership when they were good, when they were bad, and then later with me. And she said, a few years later, she said, Christina, you know, you were putting up a brave face, doing it for us, uh, pushing through. But we all saw how horrible your relationship with your business partner was, and we all suffered. So what I'm trying to say is that that sacrifice, that beautiful story that I was telling myself for three years was a terrible burden on the people for whom I was making the sacrifice. But worse than that, it was a beautiful story that I told myself rather than saying, admitting honestly, that the only thing that was stopping me from divorce was fear, fear of staying alone. Again, thanks for, thanks for sharing all that. I want to be able to give the audience some um some takeaways on this because I think this is an important thing and to talk about. And obviously, like when you're skydiving, like you're in survival mode where it's like life or death. Like there's no time for like indecision or to overthink something. It's like you got to either you're going to do or you're going to, um, you're not going to make it. Right. And in life, we're not necessarily in, in survival mode to that extent. Um, but a lot of people are in a, physiological in a way like survival mode where they're filled with fear and anxiety, stress, uncertainty, and they don't know if they're making the right decision. And they go back and forth for, for days and weeks and months and even years on like, what's that decision? How can somebody avoid the indecision trap, not overthink their fears and make sure that they're taking a step in the right direction? Well, the indecision trap, as I said, it's all about honesty. Do you have the courage to be honest with yourself. And we very often um, just don't want to face the truth. But the, I, I do believe, again, which paradigm do you come from? I do believe that we have answers inside ourselves. The question arises because you have the answer inside. And that's, that's maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but you wouldn't be wondering what you should do if somewhere deep inside you didn't think that what you have right now is not right. Um, I, I like where we're going with this because there's so many people struggle with with, um, with self-awareness and being able to understand, A, if like there's something not working in their life and B, like how to understand what all that means to be able to know if that's like deeply connected to who they are so that way they can understand where they're going. How can somebody, I mean, you've talked to some of the, the smartest people in the world in this this arena, like how can people truly get connected to themselves so they can develop this innate level of self-awareness so that they can actually know that they're making the right decisions in life. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. 
And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. Well, the right decision in life is more that trust first. I'll do trust what you think, what you feel. And, you know, in this world, we are very often told, and we were talking about that paradigm, you know, we have to fix you. We we are, are brought up uh, on the diet of you can't trust your inner feelings, you can't trust your heart. So, of course, if you've been told all the time that you can't trust what you feel, what you think, and you have to listen to someone else, then how can you how can you believe what you feel? Especially if it contradicts society's expectations or society's not even expectations. Society, let's be honest, society has no expectations towards any particular one of us, uh, but. The convention, the general convention, the convention says that you should marry once and forever. The convention says that, you know, if you're in business, your personal well-being doesn't matter. Uh, A lot of things. So if you are told on one side that uh, you can't trust your inner feelings, and if your inner feelings on the other side might contradict the uh, general perception of how things are supposed to be, then of course you're going to doubt yourself. Of course you are going to. Because it it takes courage to say, maybe I'm making a mistake, but I'd rather regret making a mistake than regret never having done what I thought was right for me to do. Uh, it uh, As anything, it requires definitely courage, definitely honesty, but it also requires kindness. And that's the piece that we miss, we miss a lot. Because we're so hard on ourselves that we... Uh, like. It's scary to make mistakes because if, if you're used to um, giving yourself love when you deserve it, then making a mistake is going to be the scariest thing you can do. Because what if you fail? What if you're imperfect? What if you're not what you thought you were? Does that mean that you will not be allowed to love yourself? That you will not deserve your own self-love? And if you, if you use love as negotiation, as currency then you will never have the courage to to go out and challenge yourself and make mistakes and actually take the risk. But you are an entrepreneur, you understand what risk is. You really can't prove. I mean, if you if you could be certain, it wouldn't be risk. And that defies the idea of taking risks. But how can you start? It's a process. <laughs> it's a process to 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 start first hearing yourself, knowing who you are knowing what your values are, understanding who you are, understanding, seeing yourself clearly, not, not a picture of perfection, not what you would like to be, but what you truly are. There's a different things, you know, what you think, what's the best version of you is, that facade that you put out to the world versus what you truly are. They're very often different people, and the bigger the gap, the harder it is to love yourself the way you really are. So you have to, uh, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't require a lot of work, but it requires time. 
<laughs> time to reprogram those neural connections and reprogram your patterns. Uh, and um, it requires three qualities in essence. The same which I have already voiced. Cour uh, courage, honesty, and kindness. And then if you keep practicing that, it's like, you know, when kids learn to walk, they don't stand up and they start walking. They first learn to turn on their tummy, hold their head, sit up, get up, and then they learn to walk. So if you've, if you've lived all your life being incredibly hard on yourself, it will take some time before you can, you, you, you can trust yourself. Let's get practical. What has been a big like belief that you've had about yourself that has been unhealthy or has fallen into, the, into this perfection trap? What was that belief? And then like, what were some of the things you would say to yourself to give yourself to be courageous, to be honest, to be loving, like to be able to, to um, you know, rewire that belief? Well, I have been perfectionist all my life and I still am. <laughs> I actually studied really well. I'm the only child of my, ch uh, of my parents. I was born in Soviet Union. So any, anything that can make you incredibly perfectionist and incredibly ambitious was there. But with that perfectionist and ambition also comes this crippling fear of failure. So I'm not incredibly, I mean, I'm competitive with, while I'm incredibly afraid of competition. Uh, and, uh, and of course, perfectionism is a trap. It, it does prevent you from doing a lot of things. It's overwhelming. And um, I remember some years ago, probably it's 10 now, I heard this interesting phrase that I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I was so in love with that idea. I, was, I, I started calling myself recovering perfectionist because I knew that perfectionism is so horrible for me until I realized one day that I can't recover from being myself. And uh, I stopped calling myself recovering perfectionist. I realized that perfectionism is a part of me, integral part of me. It's not a bad habit. A bad habit is pushing things off, is overanalyzing, is overpreparing, is not, you know, is not finishing things. That's a bad habit. But perfectionism, which is underlying the, those bad habits, it's it's forever going to be my a part of me. So when I realized that I can't recover from being myself, um, I, I had a choice. Am I going to let it keep being my curse or will I just turn it to my advantage? And um, I call perfection is my dragon, one of, I have several. <laughs> and, um, and I just learned to live with it, not to fight it, not to eradicate it, but to recognize it and to see how to not fall into its trap. And actually to see, to see its positive sides. I have high bar. <laughs> if I, I, I am still ambitious <laughs> and, uh, and these are good sides of perfectionism. Diving more into perfectionism. Cause I think that that is something that a lot of people struggle with. And I know it's a theme of your book. Um, that's, that's set to come out in, in June is that like you said, like perfectionism can be very good. You set a high bar for yourself. You're constantly pursuing things. You're driven. You're moving on to the next thing. You're looking for ways to get better. But then it like can have negative impacts as well as some of the things that we've already discussed. I know you said you've learned to use it to your advantage. Like like how? Like specifically in what ways have you, have you learned to use perfectionism to your advantage? So one very simple example is uh, my book. I, when I started writing it... Um, <laughs> I was battling with perfectionists quite a bit. But when I started writing it, uh, I wanted it to be self-published because it gave me the freedom to choose what to do, what to write, you know, what stories to add and, and how to write it. But then uh, when, um, when the time came to actually publish it, 
I realized that I want to give my book the best start in life possible. And that means that I have to attempt to, to go for New York Times bestsellers and, you know, all these uh, awards. And uh, of course, I had to start working with different kinds of people. And that's my perfectionist streak coming in. Well, yes, I know it can be paralyzing and sometimes I wouldn't do things because I can't make them perfectly or I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't finish things because they're not perfect. But when, when I do something, I want to go uh, for the best. I want to at, at least try. And that's, that's how I'm harnessing my perfectionism and using it to my advantage. So what's the difference between harnessing perfectionism and embracing the imperfection and, and not settling like how have you have you had trouble with that and if if so like how have you been able to to navigate that so embracing imperfection is not uh, about settling at all in fact when i i, I was just um uh, I, I was just having a, a longish half a day of thinking about flawsomeness and the idea of flawsomeness and i realized that one part of being flawsome, and being flawsome means uh, embracing your imperfections, is actually still having a high bar, and still having high expectations for yourself. Uh, and settling is having low expectations for yourself. And that uh, high, high bar does come from, from the courage, from understanding, from, from unconditional self-love when you know that you can still love yourself when you fail. You can still love yourself when, then, when you, you, you might not, uh, you know, you might not hit that goal. Uh, now, uh, perfectionism is having that high bar, having those high expectations, but having very low tolerance for failure and for imperfection. And that's a break in your journey. It's like, you know, the, the high expectations is like a gas, which you have to push because you want to do more. You want to, but if you're a perfectionist, because you have a low tolerance for failure and imperfection, it actually prevents you from doing a lot of things. Like that example that I, uh, that, that I brought earlier that, you know, you are complacent because you are afraid. You're afraid that if you are not your best self, you won't be able to, to, to tell yourself that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm enough, I'm good. Very often that, you know, we, very often we go for achievements because we want to prove to ourselves that we are worthy of love and respect. And because we want to prove that with the achievements, with other people's, um, with other people's admiration, that, that, that is, uh, th that is the, um, symptom that you don't believe it in your heart. You don't believe it yourself. You need someone else to tell you that you're worthy. Now, you know, um, being flawsome means that you recognize your imperfections and you recognize that you're worthy of love and respect with your imperfections. And that gives you courage to go out and, and go for your goals. How does somebody like classify like what their imperfections are? Cause I feel like that's, there's a lot of nuance to it. <laughs> that's a journey. You know, we keep discovering our imperfections as we go and, you know, Perfectionism is probably the easiest dragon to recognize, the easiest uh, imperfection, the easiest flaw to recognize, because very many of us actually carrying it as a badge of honor. Uh, I'm perfectionist. Uh, there are there are worse <laughs> dragons <laughs> down in the dark basement. The question is, do you have the courage to take the flashlight and go and look for it? And when you find it, do you have the courage to look it in the eye and say, okay, now what I'm going to do with you now? Um, I do not know how, how far you want to go down that road. <laughs> well, I mean, I just think that like, 
you know, I think everybody, at least, you know, even though people chase this, this, this facade of perfectionism, I would say most everybody knows that that's not going to happen. Like you're never going to be perfect. I just, I think people at their core know that. Right. And with that said, like being able to understand what people's imperfections are, a lot of times people might just think something is normal where it might be just an unhealthy pattern that maybe they've picked up from childhood or a bad habit that that has just gotten reinforced that they're just not aware of because they're continually doing it on a daily basis and they have for years. So that becomes an imperfection, but it's also a thing that they've, in a way, they've caused, right? Because of certain choices and habits, right? So what I'm getting at is how can we begin to identify things that we need to work on? Yeah, there's definitely a difference between bad habits and uh, imperfections. <laughs> imperfections, which are uh, your intrinsic qualities. Uh, I'll take a very simple analogy. Since uh, I'm an author and a speaker, I get to see myself on camera quite a bit. And very often when I see myself speaking and I haven't seen myself for a while, I will notice uh, new um, things about my speech, which are just bad habits, like the words which I overuse or, or certain movements which I overdo. These are the little things that we get accustomed to, we don't even notice, and they're bad habits, but they don't define me who I am. Now, when you come back to speech, my accent is something which I might be able to work on, but it's also a reflection of my background, of my origin. You can, you know, you, you can change your uh, wrong language, but certain things you can't. Of course, language is probably a very easy and light topic to discuss. Uh, now, when it comes to the habit of procrastination, is that a bad habit or does it come from your intrinsic quality of overthinking or being perfectionist or maybe being lazy? Uh, whether something is a bad habit or your intrinsic quality is only yours, your decision to make. Because something which may be a bad habit for one person may be something that you can't fight in you. And I'm not the person to judge. I can judge about my own qualities. Things which, uh, you know, which I've been trying to fight forever and it doesn't change anything and it actually takes away my power. Maybe it's okay to accept that it's just part of me. And can I find ways to uh, prevent that from stopping me living a full life? The same perfectionism, you know, for me, I realized after years of trying to fight it that it's just who I am. For some people, it may be a bad habit that they can eradicate. So it's, it's your choice. And, you know, that's, I know you're trying, you're trying to make me practical, but, <laughs> but the, thing, the thing with me is that if, if there's something I learned in personal growth in 20 years, there are no recipes in life. And there is no one size fits all. There is no one teaching that works in every single circumstance in life. What works for you today might not work for you five years from now, might not have been what you needed five years ago, might not need what I need and someone else. Someone else. So life is not a military march, it's a dance. And for you to dance it, you have to be aware of your partner. Of course, you have to drill the steps, but you have to be aware of your partner, of the music, of your surroundings. You have to make choices. You have to have the courage to hear your your inner voice and to trust yourself. That's when you're just going to work. <laughs> I, I really, yeah, I, re I truly resonate with what you say because I think many times in the per in the self 
uh, health, personal development world, there's like a recipe that people share and that they think that, that this is like the only way. And I think that what happens is that becomes addicting. That's kind of what I was um, like, what I'm, what I was getting at maybe towards the beginning of our conversation with like people consuming content and that the biggest level of personal growth for most people isn't to, to watch a Mind Valley talk. It's not to read a book. It's to take action and just go, right? It's to take that step. It's to develop courage, self-confidence. Like you're not going to, in my opinion, you're not going to develop courage by saying something to yourself. You're going to develop courage by doing something that you're afraid of and then accepting the fact that maybe you failed, maybe you succeeded, but no matter what, you learn from it and you move forward, right? And I love what you said about, and feel free to, if you disagree with me, feel free to, to say so. But I think that what happens is people get, they almost get paralyzed in this self-help space because they're constantly looking for a recipe for themselves, whether it's in a book or a podcast or something. And, and what I think it's great that people listen to my show, they listen and consume content from Mind Valley. But that can't be the end all be all. I think what what really is effective is just taking certain nuggets from different conversations that are applicable to where you're trying to go in life and then just trying to figure out how that all relates to your message or your values and just figuring out a way to orchestrate that in a way that works for you. I'll, I, I will not disagree. In fact, I will say that, <laughs> and don't get shocked, knowledge doesn't change your life because knowledge doesn't bring you transformation. Knowledge is like a book on a shelf. It's good to have it, but you will only get something out of the book if you take it off the shelf and you read it. So the same thing with knowledge. Knowledge translates into transformation only when it's coupled with experience because knowledge is a cognitive experience. It's not experience per se. For you to move it from your head into your heart, into your cellular level, for it to change the way you see life, the way you interact with life, the way you live life, it has to be experienced. Only when, uh, you see, I told, uh, I was saying about uh, skydive. You know, skydive without the framework of knowledge or ideas is just a fun experience. But the framework of knowledge and ideas without actually having to jump out of that plane, and I'm talking about plane right now uh, as, a, as, as just an illustration, not real plane, but making a step, making actually experiencing something. Only then knowledge moves from your head into your heart and starts changing your life. So I absolutely agree with you. And in addition to that, what I want to say, why people like recipes is because we don't like uncertainty. Please tell me what to do. Give me the one to three, the to-dos and the not-to-dos, but understand what it means to put more effort into things. What we don't like is taking risks, is relying on ourselves, is being not sure. So, uh, you know, a friend of mine, she has a wonderful saying, uh, my friend, My friend Vina, she has a wonderful saying. She says, life is simple and deep, but we make it shallow and complicated. It's our, this is our biggest problem. We so want to stay on the surface. Look at the facade. Give me the simple to-do list. Give me the action plan. Rather than looking deeper into the essence of things. But that makes that actually adds a layer of complication. Because we try to make uncertain things certain, we, we shoot ourselves in, le- in the leg. We, we actually, life is simple and deep. All you need to do is dive deep and have some courage and trust yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important. I think we, and I, I'm guilty of this, is that we try to connect the dots moving forward 
but we can only really connect them moving back, going backwards and looking back and being like, oh, I can see why all this worked out, right? Because I think, and I really want to hit home or um, reinforce what you said about like procrastination leads to, uh, or people are pro- procrastinate because of being perfectionist, right? And then perfectionism, I think, leads to more quote unquote imperfections in people's lives because you don't really take the risk and do the thing that you're trying to better yourself in because you're afraid of it actually you're afraid of like it not being perfect. Um, I know there's not, obviously there's not a recipe for success for people in this situation, but what has been something that's helped you personally when you are a perfectionist, maybe there's something you wanted to get done, whether it's a project, writing a book, um, whatever it is, what kind of things have you done for yourself to get yourself out of that perfectionism trap and moving forward with progress? So I want to make a comment about perfectionism in the dark side, and then I, I hope I'll return to your question. Uh, perfectionism is actually the source of the dark side, because whatever you can't accept about yourself, you shove it away, you don't deal with that, and it doesn't disappear. It actually starts, uh, you know, molding and growing and, and, and getting getting worse. So very often it's our obsession with perfectionism that creates the dark side and the wound that will require healing later on. Now, when it comes to what helps me, uh, it's uh, a very simple thing, awareness. And everything in our industry starts with an awareness. Once you switch on the awareness habit, you will start noticing things. So with perfectionism, it's really that simple. When I get stuck, the moment I catch myself and I say, oh, I'm being perfectionist again, it it stops being a block because I, uh, I can laugh at it. And how many times we've done, uh, I've created so much with the book, the program and videos and whatnot. And, and we keep laughing with my team. Sometimes when I try to do things over and over again, I just can't do that anymore. I breathe out and I say like, oh, here we go again. And people tell me, do you remember you said you have to be imperfect? And it actually helps to move on. But it's, you know, it's an interesting thing because we want to understand how do you let go? How can I, I'm, I'm trying so hard. How do I let go? But let go is the opposite of that. Perfectionism is resistance. It's trying so hard. The opposite of perfectionism is just letting be, letting go. If how does somebody know if they're caught in this trap of being a perfectionist and procrastinating? Like how, how can somebody actually identify if that's what's holding them back? I think I think people who are perfectionists they usually have the awareness enough to to acknowledge that. But generally, uh, the usual scenario is that you do all the right things, you tick all the right boxes, you go full steam ahead, and you somehow don't feel feel what you're supposed to feel. You know, I I was forty when I had my perfectly Instagramable life, but I somehow felt that I wasn't happy in it which was actually half the problem. The real problem was that I felt really guilty for not feeling happy for having achieved all my goals. So very often the scenario is like that. You do the right things. You, you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. You're doing your best, but you end up in a midlife crisis or in a dead end or depressed or you're having anxieties. Despite all of that, quite likely you're, you're a perfectionist who's just, <laughs> who's just run too fast. And I think this is a great place for us to to end our combo. Christina, I really appreciated your honesty, um, your openness and everything that you shared. We covered so much ground and I think people are going to really resonate with this conversation. It was um, 
you know, again, you were super vulnerable and relatable and I think people are going to really dig it. So where's the best place to connect with you? Where's the best place to get the book and stuff like that? The best place is, of course, Mindvalley, since I'm a co-founder of Mindvalley. I am there with a lot of other wonderful teachers and my book is uh, available. Uh, I mean, on the 13th of June, it's uh, going to be available in all the bookshops in US. <laughs> and in July, it will be available in the airports as well. But I, I would suggest that you get it uh, on Mindvalley's website, which is um, mindvalley.com slash books slash Flossom, because then it comes with all the, you know, all the goodies I created for the book. Awesome. Well, I will make sure to include the link to that in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is share a takeaway. We covered so much ground. We talked about personal growth and the dark side of it, as well as like why obviously it can be good to focus on um, investing in yourself and doing self-help stuff and self-development. We talked about perfectionism. We talked about imperfections. We talked about self-love. We talked about we talked about self-love. We talked about um, you know uh, we talked about Christina's story. We talked about so much stuff. So what I invite you to do is share a takeaway. With whatever, um, with, 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 with whatever part of our conversation hit home the most, make sure to tag Christina and Mind Valley, tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.